God, as our, as our hearts are stirred towards you, as we're thinking towards you, as we're, we're setting our eyes, we're setting our focus on you, God, would you continue to speak to our hearts today? Father in heaven, we love you. And I pray, Father, for anyone online or in this room who is sitting there saying, I need to make a decision. I just want to speak to you, whoever you are, and just say that, well, today is your day. Today is your day in Jesus' name. So God, would you continue to speak to our hearts as we step forward and we make bold decisions to follow you. We make bold decisions to represent you in our community, to take the gospel forward, to take your healing power forward, to see this community turned upside down in Jesus' name. God, would you walk step by step with us? In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you guys grab a seat for the next couple of minutes? We have, um, we have the privilege of having the president of our Bible college here. Um, ordinarily, that would sound very boring. Um, but I've known Jeremy for a long time, and he's not really that boring. <laughs> yes, I said that boring. You guys, um, as we go into the rest of this service, um, I really believe that uh, what God has placed on Jeremy's heart for us as a congregation, and for us as an assembly, is going to be really powerful. And uh, God is going to speak through him and um, help build what God is doing here. Amen? So um, this, is, this is the first time you'll, you've had to do this since COVID. But I invite you guys, just honor where honor's due. Let's welcome Jeremy Martini to the stage. Well, that didn't... Oh, there we are. That didn't really set me up uh, for, uh, I won't disappoint you then, because at least I can say it wasn't that boring. So, you know. Um, very good to be with you. It is uh, genuinely a pleasure to be with you. It's been a while. Um, I always love coming back to Brandon. I know I've shared here before, I think, this is the city I got saved in. So it's a homecoming when I come back to Brandon. My, my grandparents lived here, and that's where... Uh, that's where I first, first accepted Christ, made that decision in my life, was with my grandmother. Uh, it's also special for me to be with you because uh, you are my first out-of-COVID speaking. This is the first time I have crossed outside of Saskatchewan in seven months. And, uh, and I usually do a lot of speaking. And I have been home for seven months. So my wife who is not used to me being home. I haven't been home this much in, uh, in, in like a decade. And so I know different people tried different things. You know, we had to, people were working from home a lot in the summer, and I did that as well for a day. And then my wife suggested that perhaps it was best that I, uh, there's probably enough space for me to work at the office. So uh, it's, 
you know, different things work for different people. But anyway, it is good to be with you and, uh, and good for you to break, my, break me out of COVID. Thank you. Uh, they didn't stop me at the border. And, uh, and hopefully they won't stop me when I, when I go back as well. Uh, I'll just give you a quick update on, on our college. So you may not have a clue who I am. So uh, I'm president of Horizon College in Saskatoon. So the church has been sponsoring our college and supporting us for many years. You continue to do that. And we're really, really, really grateful to you for that. Uh, we have a lot going on. Uh, if you don't know, we are, we're moving. We're in the process of just finishing a brand new building that we will be moving into in December and operating out of in January. We're supposed to be in July, but you know how those things go. Uh, so now it's going to be a Christmas move, but that's okay. Uh, really excited. We're, we're like everywhere else. We're trying to figure out what to do with COVID. So we are kind of like this. Our classrooms look kind of like this. We are on-site and online, fully blended. Um, people sitting six feet apart, we have to mask in the common areas, all those, all those kinds of safety uh, protocols. But we're so grateful, even, even, before, uh, even before COVID, we had been investing a lot in our online learning technologies. And so when this hit, we were actually able to just flip seamlessly. You know, it was like a Monday, they announced the closure of schools. You had a week to wind down. So by Friday, that you're all, everybody's off campus, and by the next Monday, no students even missed a class, which was maybe not what they were hoping for, but anyway. Uh, and then we've just been able to scale up our tech, and so that's, that's been amazing. So really grateful for what the Lord's doing. Um, I'm excited just because it's actually accelerated a lot of things that we were already doing anyway, so that's, that's good. From a leadership perspective, it's always nice to blame COVID if you've got to make a bunch of changes. So... Um, I'm doing that. So anyway, really, really glad to be with you. And, uh, and this morning, what I want to share with you uh, kind of stems out of the privilege that I have and the role that I serve, which I think is the best job ever. I get to, I get to study the scriptures, and I get to uh, impart knowledge and help prepare leaders to go on and advance the kingdom for Christ. And I don't know, I, I mean, I guess you call it a calling, but I can't imagine doing anything else. It is, it's the best it's the best thing in the world. Uh, and I wanna, what I want to bring to you today is a bit of a challenge. So I'm out of COVID, so it's all, I'm all built up, right? So we've got lots of challenges. But it's a challenge for the church, not a challenge particular to CT Brandon. Uh, I'll let you align yourself or not, see where you're at on this. But a challenge for the church at large. And one of the things that happened to me on COVID is I had to break my lifelong um, boycott of Facebook I had, I had resisted, I intentionally used to call it the Facebook, just so I could sound like I didn't know what I was talking about, even though I did, but I had to get on there just because it's the only way to communicate. And there's a lot of stuff on there that made me realize why I wasn't on there before. But anyway, <laughs> you know, weird stuff, pandemics really bring out odd aspects of people. I don't know if you noticed that. Maybe you're all on there. Anyway, there's some weird thinking that goes on out there. And, uh, and some of it's even done by Christians. Hmm. Anyway, that's part of what I want to talk about, not about Facebook, and not even specifically about, about COVID. But what I want to talk about is our, is our God story, and I'll unpack what that means uh, in a minute. Uh, there's a quote here I, wanna, I want to read to you, um, and it comes, from, it comes from a book 
that's written based on a 15-year study of youth. And it's a, so this one is, uh, is American, so it looks at, uh, at American youth, but it's American youth trends. But this is a national study of youth and religion, and they studied youth and made some remarkable findings. And I want to, I wanna, there's a couple of things out of this that I want to point out. So let me just read you this quote that's a, basically, a, this is after they've done this longitudinal study of youth in America. So it, and and what, they, what they discovered was that in the church, not outside of the church, but within the church, the faith that teens were expressing uh, was so dissimilar to historic Christianity that as sociologists, they had to come up with another name for it. It actually wasn't Christian. This is not the teens outside the church. This is the faith in God that's being expressed inside the church. And so they're kind of saying, what do we do with this, with this data? So uh, here's a quote there from one of the researchers. Even if teenagers participate fully in youth ministry programs, are involved in churches and manage to dodge disruptive life events and overwhelming counter-influences, youth are unlikely to take hold of a God who is too limp to take hold of them. And so this is part of their assessment of why is, where's the problem? What's with these young people today, right? So here's what they're suggesting. But perhaps young people lack robust Christian identities because churches offer such a stripped-down version of Christianity that it no longer poses a viable alternative to imposter spiritualities. If teenagers lack an articulate faith, maybe it is because the faith we show them is too spineless to merit much in the way of conversation. This one really holds your feelings in if you can't know what she's thinking. Maybe teenagers' inability to talk about religion is not because the church inspires a faith too deep for words, but because the God story that we tell is too vapid to merit more than a superficial vocabulary. Okay, so that's a right good punch to the gut, right? A couple things out of this that are really disturbing um, and interesting. One is, as they did the follow-up study and did sort of the subjective element where they actually interviewed a lot of the people and their parents, a lot of the youth and their parents, um, there was another interesting uh, thing that they found, and that is that a youth who who professed a faith that was so alien to Christianity, you know, God is nice and good and loves everybody and we all need to get along, and, and that's basically what Christianity is all about, nothing about sacrifice or moral reform or, or understanding our identity in Christ. There was none of that. It was just God's nice and good and jolly and we all want to get along. Uh, when they followed up with it, one of the interesting and, and disturbing discoveries that they made is that the number one predictor of how a youth saw God and Christianity and faith was their parents. In other words, uh, it wasn't just that the youth had this vapid, to use her word, theology, it's that if the youth had it, predictably, the parents also had it. Which means that you're not talking about one generation, you're talking about more than one generation. So that's one disturbing thing. The second disturbing thing about this is that what I'm quoting to you here was published in 2010. And the youth that they were studying went from 2001 to 2017. 
That means that the 15-year-old who was reporting in 2001 is now the parent of the children that are in, in, or not, perhaps more than likely not among us today, and the parents of that youth are the grandparents. So this is not a youth issue, this is a, a generational issue. I put up here the definition of vapid because it's not something that comes up over coffee very often, uh, but vapid means devoid of animation, zest, or interest, dull, flat, lifeless, insipid, nothing really robust or, or solid. And, and so um, we've got this vapid faith that's been going on for generations. Now, if we think, well, maybe, it, maybe it's self-corrected at some point, and, uh, and everything got better. But let me just give you some more stats here. This is what happens when you're locked up in COVID. You do too much reading and too much stuff. So you get the, you're, the first, you're the first to get the benefit of this, hey? All right, so here's a Canadian. Here's from a Canadian book published 2019. So this is recent. It's, and uh, and it's, it's focused on, uh, on millennials. Uh, the awkward thing about this uh, from a studying perspective is the way they classify millennials kind of lumps in a lot of what we would call Gen Zs as well. But anyway, you can, you can see what they say. But look, look at some of their findings. So uh, in one of the studies, I agree that the Ten Commandments still, still apply today. When you look at that millennial Gen Z uh, cohort, so anyone kind of 1986, born in 1986 and, and to today kind of, uh, 60% think that the Ten Commandments are still valid. The Gen Xers, that would be myself and and Pastor Fisher here, we'd be that Gen X. We used to think we were cool, but now, you know. Now, 68% think it applies. Boomers, 77, and then the pre-boomers, those born pre-1946, 91% think that the Ten Commandments are relevant. Um, interestingly, those who think that, a that the growth of atheism is a good thing for Canada Almost half of the millennial Gen Z cohort thinks that the growth of atheism is a good thing for the country. And the corresponding in the last column there, I prefer to live without God or congregation. These numbers are exactly the same. Um, almost half prefer to live without God or congregation. Um, and then you can see that it goes down from there. Um, interestingly, though, Almost half also agree that it's important for parents to teach their children religious beliefs. But since almost half don't possess necessarily religious beliefs and are happy to impart atheism, it's hard to know how exactly that, that plays out. So if we look at the next slide, it lets us know that about 30% of millennials, and we sum it all up, about 30% are inclined to embrace religion, about 30% to reject it outright, and it, some 60% are or 40%, sorry, are, are sort of in the middle there. One more interesting note, next slide, is when we consider the Gen Zs as a distinct from millennials, um, and now this would be taking those born around 1997 and up. At least in, this, in the US, and probably we already got here earlier in Canada, because we're more, not less secular in a reporting way, uh, this is the first post-Christian generation. We have the first generation that has been raised in a post-Christian context, and that's what we 
have today. And so what I want to challenge us with as a church is that as a church, we need a more robust, relevant God story. We have things like COVID come along. We have mass social injustice come along. We have a world that seems to be coming apart. And there are all kinds of narratives that we can find to explain it, political narratives, sociological narratives. But we as Christians, we have a story that puts this, that makes sense of our world. We have a story but based on the data, we've neglected telling that story in a robust way. And if we don't tell it in a robust way, where is anybody to find it? Where, where does the next generation, where does this generation, where does the past generation find it? How do we make sense of our world and God in our world? So, I got three, three thoughts on this that I, that I want to share you. The first is that, you know, it's church, so we need to talk about the Bible. We could do this without, but I want to come back. And besides, the Bible is more relevant than, than I am. So we want to, we want to pay attention here. But, but the Bible's God stories are robust. Now, on one sense, this whole book, the Bible, uh, this, this is the source that we use to find our God story. This is how God has chosen to communicate to his people through his church and say, look, this is how you can shape the world around you, understand the shape of the world around you, how you can make sense of the nonsense or the apparent nonsense. And as we get deeper and deeper into this book, uh, we can understand that a little bit. When, if you look at this, um, if you have a Bible, I just want you, we're not gonna read the whole thing because it would take longer than your lunch, but um, if you look at the sermons in the book of Acts, look at the sermons. So I want you to think about your God story. Someone say, hey, what, is it, what, is the, what does it mean to be a Christian? Like, think about how you answer that question right now. What's the essential parts? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean? What's your God story? How do you make sense of God in the world? What's this, what's this mean? So think about it for just a second, and then look at how Peter and Stephen and Paul tackle it, because it's different. So we're not, we're not going to look at the whole thing, like I said, because it, it would take too long, but I'm going to just, um, highlight how this goes. So if you look at these sermons all throughout the book of Acts, if you look at Paul's entire letters, which are, which are written to address these questions, uh, in short, the answer isn't short. In short, the answer, they don't have a meme length, bumper sticker level answer to those questions. So when, when Peter gets up and gives his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit's come and all the people, and, and Peter gets up here and, uh, and begins to address the people starting in verse 14, uh, and he, or verse 16, and he gets up and he says, Look, this is what it says in the prophet Joel. In the last days, in the end of time, all of these things are going to happen. And then he starts to recite this whole piece out of the last days and out of the end of time. And he takes them on this long narrative through King David 
and he takes them all the way up into what's happening with Jesus. He gives this entire long, elongated backstory and situates the, what God is doing in the world today in Christ in this long story of Israel's history and how this all makes sense here at the end of time that he's seeing it as happening. And so he gives this long story. If you look over in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, he's about to be the first martyr. And he starts it up and he goes right from Genesis all the way up to Jesus before they pick up the stones and, and kill him. Colossians, in Colossians 1, it's this fantastic passage. You can do your, your bedtime meditation tonight. Colossians 1, Paul, I mean, Christ, before there was anything, here's Christ before the beginning of the universe. This is what formed all that is. They situate it back in the heavenlies and goes on. So, so the, the God story that the, the New Testament writers told covers all time and all space, and it, it involves everything, and it's, it's unpacked. We could look at scripture after scripture after scripture. The whole book is really answering these questions, and it answers them in in-depth ways. It answers them in, in ways that can't Sometimes it's summed up as a simple statement of faith, but as the faith is unpacked at layers and layers and layers and layers that addresses the human condition, that addresses people where they're at, and it answers it in a, a deep way. And we, we sometimes want it to be more simple. So I, I think we have a, an example in the scriptures of a robust God story, a deep and layered one. If we look here again at the same uh, book I quoted out of Candid uh, Creasy Dean, she writes this, unless teenagers, who are now the parents, the, unless teenagers hear the, gar, go, the, the, gospel, the gospel, the gospel harbored in sacred texts in all their problematic wonder, they have no basis for either accepting or rejecting the gospel in the first place. Young people looking to us for meaning and hope do not need us to protect God, and God certainly does not need our protection. They need us to model a theology marked by patience and determination, and above all, humility as postmodern Christians honestly confront historical and biological and cultural and sociological research that may challenge who we thought we were. We can't just say, look, you just got to believe it. The Bible doesn't need us to say, look, you just got to believe it. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Because that, that blind faith answer hasn't been a robust enough story for too many of our young and not-so-young people. And so they've found more satisfying stories. They didn't say, well, just believe it. Don't, you don't have to think about it. So we, we need to be comfortable with a bit of uncomfortability. I don't know why that works is an okay answer. I teach at a college, and I can routinely say, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. And be comfortable with that. We have to get comfortable with that as we look to wrestle with the story and new discoveries and how the Bible fits with the world in a 21st century world. How do we put this together in a sensible way? Our teens and our adults need it. All right, secondly, uh, the Bible's God stories are, are age appropriate. 
Now, by age appropriate, I don't, I'm not talking about our chronological age. What I'm talking about is our spiritual age. Sometimes the God story at one phase of our life is like the blind man who was healed by Jesus when they said, look, why do you believe him? You know, I don't know who this guy is, but I was blind, and now I see. And that's wonderful for that stage. But if that same follower of Jesus hasn't developed and improved and added to and made more robust his God story from that moment of conversion to the very end, then we've got a problem. It's not going to help him through COVID. It's not going to help him through a world coming apart. He needs more depth. A couple of scriptures here. Acts 18, um, we meet Apollos. He's traveling, and there's Priscilla and Aquila, and they meet Apollos. And, it's, and Luke says this. He says, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he's been instructing, instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit. And he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. But he only knew the baptism of John. So Priscilla and Aquila come along, and they explain to him that there is more to the story. And his faith and his understanding and his God story grows, and he goes on to be fruitful. Another story here uh, in Hebrews, I understand you just spent some time in Hebrews. Did you see this one in 511? We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk and not solid food. And it goes on to say that solid food is for the mature. And he rebukes them because they haven't grown in their God story. It's okay to start this way, but if you stay here, that's not good. That's, that's not what we sometimes confuse with childlike faith. Childlike faith isn't about not knowing more about God. It's about not having status, just like a child didn't have status in the ancient Roman world. You take on that humble status of a child. It doesn't mean, well, I can't think about it. So we need a little more robust faith. Let me give you another quote here uh, from a different book, Faith for Exiles. This is uh, another book, 2017 this came out. This is looking at the faith of, of teens again, but more recent. Uh, here, uh, it's a Barna study. And they say, our research supports the contention that learning matters. Young resilient disciples report nearly double the spiritual intake in a typical year compared to habitual churchgoers, and about six times that number of hours of Christians of Christian content compared to nomads and prodigals, those who aren't really engaged with church at all. Over the course of years, this adds up, and they conclude the habits of learning, of steeping ourselves in a Christian way of thinking and seeing the world matter. It matters for how we think. We have to get deeper. All right, third one. The Bible's God stories are adaptable. They're adaptable. If you look again, we'll look at the sermons. We won't look closely here, but if you compare the beginning of Acts 17 to the end, Paul preaches twice. At the beginning of Acts 17, he preaches to a group of Jews in a synagogue. And there, he appeals to the scriptures because it's common 
common language that they share. And he shows from the scriptures that Jesus is so. By the end of Acts 17, he showed up in Athens with all these Greek philosophers who, who, don't, who don't give a fig about the Hebrew scriptures, don't even know a thing about them. And he says, oh, okay, well, in this case, uh, let me appeal to what you know and what's common to you. And so he has these two come together, uh, these two different ways of teaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He doesn't change what his message is, but he changes how. He adapts how he teaches it. And so our last questions here, how, how then, um, how does the church tell a more robust and relevant God story? How do we do it? And I'll suggest a couple of things, and I'll leave with a couple of quotes. Uh, we have to think about it ourselves. What are we doing to feed ourselves? We have to do more than just the simple read a, read a verse or two a day or not even that. What are we doing to feed ourselves and to form a view of the world, a Christian view of the world? How do we take this on individually? and in our families. And when we offer courses, I'll put in a plug. You're welcome to join us online this year. I will, I will throw that out to you. In fact, I can even say we have some stuff online which I haven't talked to my staff about, but I think I'm the boss. I can make the call. So if you want, we'll make it a, can make some stuff freely available for the church, Pastor Michael. At least my course, I can't take that. We'll, we'll let you do that. If you want, if you want to do something like that, um, that's open to you. But how are you getting in a little bit deeper? A couple, two more quotes, and then I'll I'll be I'll be done. Uh, again, talking about Gen Z, the most pressing barriers when it comes to the church, according to James Emery White, the most pressing barriers to overcoming, to overcome for the church, come from being compromised, cloistered, or combative. As for being compromised, the church will have to understand that the key is being counter in a post-Christian culture, not a copy of it, or else we will have nothing to offer the world that it doesn't already have. In terms of being cloistered, we must avoid abdicating from cultural engagement by going into isolation. And when it comes to being combative, I'm gonna pause here, because this is the thing I see most on the Facebook. When it comes to being combative, we must avoid engaging culture in some kind of holy war. That's, you know, all that does is entrench. You almost never win somebody over to your view when you tell them that they're really stupid for holding theirs. Almost never works. You're actually making the problem worse. Not you, but those other guys on Facebook. Last quote, churches, again from this book, churches need more than good sermons to disciple in what they call digital Babylon. We're living in a digital Babylon. We also need other structures of learning, courses, programs, mentoring, field-based experiences, mission trips, more. We, we need to get more robust. We need to get more robust. And that's why I feel so privileged in the role I get to be in. I get to live in the more robust side of things all the time. And, and I'm passionate that we get this into our churches because, because it matters. It matters for this generation. It matters for the next generation. But it matters for all the generations that have come before too. 
we have a robust God story. And it's our challenge to go and learn it and then to tell it. So thank you very much for having me today. And may God bless you.